Hi, and welcome to this next episode of the Brexit and Beyond podcast brought to you by the UK in a changing Europe. And this week we have someone who for me is a very special guest, Peter Hall from Harvard University. He's the Foundation Professor of European Studies and has been, I think, since 2001. And I have to sort of let you into a quick secret before I start talking to Peter, which is I'm a bit of a fanboy in the sense that I've sort of lived with Peter's writings on European politics since I was a PhD student and before. And he's been one of those people whose work I have turned to over and over and over again. And it is, Peter, absolutely fabulous that you can join us today. Oh, it's great to be here, Anand. Uh, I mean, you've just made me sound like I'm a Methuselah, maybe 100, <laughs> 150 years old, but I'm uh, not quite that old. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, uh, the work, uh, learned a lot from the work of UK and Changing Europe. But I want to start with a piece that you've done quite recently on populism and social integration, partly because it was a fascinating piece, partly because it chimes with so much of the work that we've been concerned with in thinking about Brexit. So rather than summarise it for you, do you want to just tell us what the key ideas in that piece are? Yes, uh, that's, uh, there are two articles actually uh, on roughly the same topic, one in the comparative uh, political studies and one in the British Journal of Sociology with uh, my colleague Noam Gidron, who teaches at the uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I think that we were motivated to work on this because at the time we started, the debate about the causes of populism, in particular uh, rising support for right populism, had become a debate about whether this was a revolt against globalization uh, with broadly economic causes, uh, or whether it was a kind of uh, cultural revolt, a cultural counter-reaction to the um, rise of post-material or cosmopolitan values uh, that the prominence of those values among the elites. And our sense was that that was a kind of artificial debate, that there was a way in which a rising support for uh, right populist politicians of, of, of many sorts, uh, you know, ranging uh, from Marine Le Pen in France to, I would say, Donald Trump in the U.S. and, 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 and you know, maybe some strains of uh, the Leave campaign in, the, in Brexit, you would have views about that, that this was a phenomenon that had both economic and cultural roots. And so we tried to think about how, how to understand that. And uh, the answer uh, that we really came up with is to think in terms of people's social standing, you know, what uh, sociologists call their subjective social status. Uh, the sense of, well, am I respected in society? Where do I stand in society? How well integrated am I into the broader social fabric in which I live? And uh, so that's what we began to look at. And we discovered that, in fact, the subjective social status, the sense of respect, the sense of social standing of many people, particularly uh, white men without a college education, had been declining in uh, many of the developed democracies uh, over the past 30 years, uh, and that a sense of low social standing uh, is quite closely associated with support for right populist parties. Would you say then that the appeal of people like Donald Trump is that they make these people who feel socially undervalued respected again? Yes, I, I mean, I, I, Look, when when a right populist politician wins an election, uh, he or she does so on the back of a multiply motivated, diverse coalition. Right? There are people who voted for Donald Trump because they wanted a conservative Supreme Court. 
there are people who voted for him because he's a, a big on fossil fuels and that fossil fuels are important to the economy of their state and the like. Uh, so, you know, there's no one explanation. This is part of the problem for those of us who want to analyze these things. There's no one explanation that works for these uh, results. But yes, uh, yes, having said that, I, my own sense is that lots of people, and in, you know, a few months ago, more than 70 million Americans voted for Donald Trump, and a lot of them did so because they think, well, he speaks for me. He's, you know, he's not part of an East Coast, West Coast elite uh, that looks down on me. You know, it was so unfortunate in the uh, uh, election before this that uh, Hillary Clinton was quoted as uh, describing um, uh, Trump's uh, supporters as deplorables, mm. uh, because I think that's what a lot of people suspect. Uh, they suspect that there are a lot of people like uh, me or like you or anybody, um, uh, you know, who's uh, prominent in uh, business or politics uh, has nothing in common with them, look, 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 looks down on them. Yes, yes, I think that's a, a key factor here. But I often wonder, and I wonder this in the context of British politics as well, where, you know, you get these traditional Labour voters voting for Boris Johnson, of all people, which seems like an unlikely combination on the surface. But I wonder whether part of it isn't just he appeals to me, but he's not them. So it's almost a reaction against the other lot as much as it is a statement of support for this lot. And I, I, I sense that a bit about Donald Trump as well. It's not so much we feel that Donald Trump is, is like us, because clearly Donald Trump isn't like a lot of those people. But it was it was a sort of a poke in the eye of the establishment that has been letting us down for such a long time. Is there an element of that as well, do you think? Yes, I uh, see it more clearly in the US case than uh, the UK case, because uh, uh, Boris Johnson is such an epitome of a certain kind of upper class <laughs> uh, figure. Uh, you know, the old Etonian, it's um, <clears throat> rather uh, difficult to I, I, th I, think, I, I think in some ways those two cases are actually rather different. Yes, I think there, there's no question that this is an anti-establishment movement. This is a sense that uh, nothing has been done for me. And, and in many cases, that's entirely right. I mean, we've lived through, you know, 30 years plus of increasing uh, economic inequality and increasing uh, job insecurity, something we sometimes forget. And so there are a lot of people who feel that uh, their lives are getting worse rather than better. And you'll know Anon even better than I in the uh, Lord Ashcroft's polls around the time of the Brexit referendum. Uh, one of the factors that uh, separated those who uh, voted to remain from those who voted to leave uh, was a, a sense of, uh, you know, their responses to questions about is life better today than it was 30 years ago? And yeah. do you think life will be better for your children 30 years from now than it uh, is today? And uh, large uh, proportions of those who voted leave uh, said no to both questions. Uh, in other words, uh, there's a sense that economically people are falling behind and that the political elites, no matter what their rhetoric, don't really care about people like me. And I think you see that very clearly in the support uh, for Trump. Uh, it's not so clear to me that, I, well, I'm sure that that uh, to some degree uh, speaks to support for Brexit and, uh, uh, and also uh, to some degree Boris Johnson. But we should remember that uh, center-left parties like the Labour Party or the German Social Democrats uh, or the French Socialists, if you remember the French Socialists, they barely, barely <laughs> exist. Uh, I mean, the mirror image of this rising support for right populism is really declining support for center-left parties across yeah. Europe. 
And, uh, and that has many causes. And I think that's in part what we see when we look at those um, districts in the Midlands or the North that uh, voted for the Conservatives in the last British election. Uh, it, it's not just, oh, I want to vote against the establishment because, you know, the British Conservative Party is the establishment. Uh, it, it also has something to do with declining trade union membership. So people don't feel that the kinds of local solidarities that trade unions uh, once promoted, uh, it has something to do with a, a sense of being left behind. Of course, it, in the UK case, there were certain factors unique to the Corbyn phenomenon, which yeah. meant, A, he was able to excite a certain constituency and get real buy-in from certain groups, but on the other hand, alienate a whole number of traditional Labour supporters, whether it's because of his attitude towards the Queen or the flag or defence and, and things like that. It, 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 I mean, yes. you know, I suppose future... Well, yes, and of course the ambiguous stance of the party on, on Brexit, you know, which was, yep. still remains one of the key issues in the country, or at least I'm not sure it still remains a key issue, but it certainly was in that election. Yes, of course. Lots of local factors matter in every one of the countries we could be talking about. Is, is the logic of your analysis that the way to address populism first and foremost is via economic policy measures? Uh, no, I think that the heart of uh, what Norm and I have uh, been arguing is that th this has to be a two-pronged uh, approach. Yes, uh, economic measures are crucial, and, it, and it's not altogether easy uh, to, to figure out just uh, what measures are going to work, because uh, what people want is not higher social benefits, although higher social benefits would help in some uh, regions of these countries. What they want are decent jobs, you know, and I think if we, if we hand back and look at the broader picture here, we have to realize we're living through a technological revolution. Uh, information technology, communications technology, now biotechnology, uh, and that's dramatically uh, changing the landscape of uh, occupations, as industrial revolutions always do. Think about those handloom weavers in the early 1800s who starved to death because of the factory system, right? Yeah. Well, similarly, uh, as jobs shift towards uh, highly skilled occupations, uh, there are lots of people who are being pushed out of decent manufacturing jobs into low-skill, low-paid service jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and yes, it, it would help them to have, you know, higher levels of universal credit, uh, better availability, childcare, that kind of thing. Uh, but what they really want are decent jobs. And that I think is the very big challenge and spreading those jobs across entire countries as opposed to yeah. concentrating them in London, for instance. Uh, yeah, so yes, that's, that's one side of it. But I should say the other side of it is if this is also a cultural revolt, and I think it is to some degree, then there has to be a, a serious symbolic politics, if we could call it that. You know, we sometimes think of symbolism as epiphenomenal, as, as something that uh, it doesn't really matter and often reflects hypocrisy and the like. Uh, mm -hmm. But in point of fact, what leaders, uh, political leaders, national leaders say matters. And what they say about uh, who deserves respect, uh, who belongs uh, to the society, uh, what our uh, obligations are to other people, those things matter. And I think that because this is partly a cultural revolt, it's very important that there be an effective symbolic politics, a sincere symbolic politics, if you like, 
uh, of belonging. I mean, it's very interesting in that regard that the Labour Party now under Keir Starmer is placing a whole load of emphasis on things like family and flag, which seems to speak to some of the issues that you've just raised there, that at least it's it's a signal that the Labour Party now gets those issues in a way that perhaps under Jeremy Corbyn, it simply did not. But I suppose the other touchstone issue is immigration. Now, immigration here in our debates is often framed as a purely economic phenomenon. That's to say competition for jobs or driving wages down. You've got a slightly different take on that, haven't you, in in, in your work on populism? That's right. I mean, I think that uh, while a debate often treats immigration as an economic phenomenon, and in the UK to some degree, of course, uh, with immigration th- uh, through the European Union, uh, this matter for jobs. But I think that the economic analysis shows us fairly well that in uh, most countries, most times and places, immigration really doesn't uh, take jobs away uh, from people, uh, except that a very small number, uh, very low paid jobs at the margin. On the whole, uh, the economic benefits are positive. My own research suggests that, yes, immigration matters a lot to rising support for the populist right, uh, but it really matters as a cultural issue. Uh, people feel that their national culture is being threatened, or they're being somehow personally affronted by seeing people who don't uh, speak English or who look different uh, in their local towns. And uh, so that's one reason uh, it's a really difficult uh, issue to deal with. It isn't purely economic. Uh, It has to do with a sense of cultural threat. And uh, those sorts of, it's very tempting for politicians uh, to play up cultural threats, very hard for them to effectively play it down Uh, This has been a perennial issue for our politics. But just, we're going to have a quick break now, uh, Peter. I've just got to say to everyone, we will be back in a couple of seconds after these very short but very exciting commercials. Hello. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name's Catherine Barnard, and I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week, full of news and views. And then, if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. It was in deference to Peter that I said commercials there rather than advertisements, you see, because I'm very cross-cultural. In both the UK and the US, one of the dividing lines in society is the division between those who have a university education and those who don't. Education is absolutely fundamental. Do you think universities can or should do more to try and address some of these issues? I mean, are are universities somehow to blame? You hear a lot of people on the right accusing universities of being training grounds for the next generation of the liberal elite for instance? Well, uh, yes, I think universities are training grounds for the next generation of the liberal elite, but uh, that's not the worst war crime (laughs) in the Western world. I I see universities as uh, part of the solution rather than the problem. I, you know, I'm probably biased and on uh, like you, I work in a university. I I think one of the key features of the current situation is that in many respects, uh, the political situation from my perspective in the short term looks rather are bad. I'm a supporter of center-left parties. I see them in uh, decline. Uh, I worry about uh, Brexit. I worry about uh, the polarization in the U.S. and the like. So in the short term, I'm a bit of a pessimist. But in the long term, I'm something of an optimist because of generational change. The younger generations have very different attitudes, and not just you know students in universities, but uh, uh, Young people in all walks of life have very different attitudes, uh, much more tolerant attitudes, much more cosmopolitan attitudes than their parents tend to have. And uh, I think uh, the universities are contributing to that, but I also think that in the long run, uh, that's going to make the world a better place. 
we, we often think of culture as, uh, or at least political scientists, I'm a political scientist, think of culture as something rather static, uh, something that doesn't change very much. You know, well, you, well, there's always culture kind of thing. But in fact, cultural attitudes can change very rapidly. And we see that uh, particularly in generational change. In the US, I would say uh, only 20 years ago, majorities probably were opposed to uh, gay marriage. And today, majorities are in favor of gay marriage. Now, and that's led by young people. And uh, to some degree, I think universities play a role uh, in these changing attitudes. But uh, it's also a more general social phenomenon. Because after all, uh, we often forget parents learn from their children. It's not just children learn from their parents. Never happens in this house, Peter. Never happens at all. But I would say, actually, in this regard, if you haven't seen it, you should have a look at a book by uh, Rob Ford and Maria Sobolewska called Brexit Land, which is very, very interesting on some of these issues. Yes, I'm a, I'm a fan of Rob Ford's work, so I'll definitely be getting it. No, no, it's, it, 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 it is a very good read. I mean, one of the interesting debates we're having in this country now, and the government is keen to promote, is, is a debate that basically says, look, we've spent far too long putting too much emphasis on university education as the only sort of education that's going to get you anywhere in society. And that's one of the problems with society at the moment. Only a certain number of people can go to university. And the ones who don't inherently feel undervalued because of the rhetoric deployed by political elites about universities. I suppose the first thing is, do you see an element of truth in that? But secondly, is there something that can be done? The government here wants to talk about further education, uh, technical education, you know, a bit like the Germans spent so much money on. Yeah, I, do, I do think there's some truth in that. I, I... Uh, and I think, so we face a, what I see as a very powerful economic imperative, which is to say that in this knowledge economy that uh, the UK and indeed the developed world as a whole has entered into, more and more jobs are going to require higher and higher skills and uh, well-paid jobs in particular are going to require higher skills. And in many cases, those are skills conferred uh, by uh, universities. So it, it's, it's not as if we can just say, oh, you know, let's reduce university enrollments. This is, a pure, this is not a purely cultural phenomenon. This is an economic imperative. On the other hand, as you know, uh, university enrollments in the UK ha have increased dramatically over the last uh, 30. You know, Tony Blair in some ways made a major commitment to uh, educate 50% of the uh, cohort, uh, that is say, uh, send 50% of the relevant age cohort to university. That's now been more or less achieved in the UK. Some ways that's a triumph. In other ways, it's a disappointment because a good number of university graduates are not getting commensurate jobs. Jane Gingrich and Ben Ansel at Oxford have some very good recent work showing that there's a big mismatch that up to a third of university graduates are working in jobs that may not normally have required a university degree. So so it, it, it's a problem of supply and demand there. Do we address it by expanding tertiary education that is non-university education? Yes, I think that's a good idea. I mean, I think that in the U.S., uh, community colleges should be given more support. I think that the U.K. should move in uh, that direction as well. The problem is that the U.K., can't simply adopt some kind of German or Swedish solution. You know, Germany has a very effective system of vocational training, uh, which uh, makes decent work available, well-paid work available to people yeah. in a, a wide range of, from a wide range of backgrounds. Uh, but that's a system operated by employers and trade unions working in close consultation 
uh, with each other in the way that they do over wages and working conditions as well. And of course, the UK doesn't have that kind of employers association. It doesn't have those kinds mm -hmm. of trade unions. And therefore, the big challenge for expanding technical education, uh, what the Americans call community colleges, the big challenge is figuring out uh, what skills you impart uh, so that there will really be jobs for the people who acquire yeah. those skills. Uh, I, I think that's resolvable, uh, but I think uh, the way to go is probably a combination of formal education in something like uh, technical colleges, plus internships, part-time apprenticeships uh, in business. Mm -hmm. A number of companies, the Japanese companies and a number of others, German companies uh, working in the southern part of the U.S. have adopted, promoted those kinds of measures, and there's been some success. There's uh, some some good examples of success with that kind of approach. So yes, yes, I don't think we should send everybody to university, but I, I certainly don't think that uh, the universities are the principal problem here. Interesting. I hope someone in our government is looking at these examples from the US and learning uh, lessons from them. Have you, have you at all followed this debate about meritocracy that has been raging with a few recent books? Yes, I, I have indeed. Uh, my colleague, Michael Sandel, has written yep. a a good book about that and uh, I've been following the debate. And do you find that argument somehow convincing that actually in a sense, I mean, to put it very very simply that this notion of meritocracy is a way of, of wrapping up the, the privilege of the already privileged and making it seem like it's based on merit when it actually may not be and does yes. that feed into some of the phenomena you're talking about? Yes I think I'm afraid that that's entirely right and and if you'll remember the concept of meritocracy was really uh, developed by Michael Young uh, the sociologist mm -hmm. in London who wrote a book uh, the rise of the meritocracy in 1958, I think. And what we forget is that book was written as a satire. Written, yeah. It was written as a book designed to explain how terrible it would be if people really believed that where they ended up in life was entirely the result of their own effort uh, and their talents. I, I think that that, you know, that, but of course, this is a long-standing view. It's a long-standing American view, certainly. And uh, it has a, a pedigree in the UK that goes back at least to uh, Michael Young's book. So it's not uh, anything new, but to the extent that ideas of meritocracy have been reinforced over the neoliberal years of the 1980s and 1990s, yes, I think they amount to blaming the victim, telling people that if, you're, if you don't have a decent job, if you're having trouble supporting your family, uh, well, this is basically your fault. You obviously didn't work hard enough. You obviously didn't get enough schooling, something of that sort, when, of course, that's often and most typically not the case. We live in a world that in which our fortunes shift as a result of forces that aren't under our control. And um, yes, I think that in the end, what that does is uh, blames the victim. Uh, it, it generates exactly the kind of resentment we started talking about, namely the sense that nobody cares about me, uh, they're looking down on me, uh, when in fact, this is not my fault. The, the, the thing about Rising support for a right populism in all sorts of guises, causes, politicians, and the like. The thing we need to appreciate about it is that it's built to some degree on fear and on apprehension. An apprehension that the world is changing, is being pushed, and my life is being pushed by forces that are well beyond my control. Automation, uh, globalization. And that's a very disturbing feeling when you feel that uh, you're... Uh, being tossed about by forces that over which you have no control and which your government seems unable or unwilling yeah. to control. 
And that I think is a, it, it's very hard to study that because it's a rather nebulous idea, but I think it's a very important feature of this very central phenomenon in our political world. And, and finally, I mean, we're living through very polarized political times where a lot of people who previously weren't politically active have become politically active. And of course, the UK in a changing Europe, what we try and do is, is maximize the impact that social science has on the real world, if I can call it that. Do you think in general, academics can and should do more to engage in public and political debates to make make the sort of findings of their research more widely known outside the academy? Uh, yes, I do. I, I'm an Aristotelian, so I would say everything in moderation here. I think uh, the UK and Exchanging Europe is a great example of how important that's been and how useful uh, that can be. I, th I think it's very important for uh, scholars and scientists uh, to make their work available to a broader uh, public and to speak to issues uh, of broad public concern and and not simply kind of arcane issues that even I sometimes uh, write about of interest to a small group of scholars. So yes, I think that's important. I would say though uh, that I don't think we should turn it into a fetish. Uh, I'm not a fan of vice chancellors counting up uh, the uh, number of articles you've written uh, for The Guardian or uh, the number of times you've been interviewed by Anon Menon. I think that uh, that uh, doesn't especially help academics because I think not everyone is going to do exactly the same thing as well as uh, other people might. So uh, yes, it's important to speak out. Um, I'm very glad that UK and a changing Europe is doing that, but let's not uh, force every ap academic in the Western world uh, to try uh, writing those newspaper columns. That seems to me a good note on which to uh, end. Peter, thank you ever so much for joining us today. It has been, as I anticipated, absolutely fascinating. I'm slightly upset we never got on to governing the economy or indeed institutionalism, which I had some questions for you on, but maybe the next time. Okay, the next time and on. Thanks very much. Thank you.